Hi, and welcome to Lost in Citations. I'm Lisa M. Hunsberger, the creative mind behind theadpikni.com, an online presentation design and video editing service registered in Japan. Today, we're switching things up a bit. I'll be your host. And joining me is one half of the Lost in Citations duo, Chris Haswell. Chris recently made a blog post on the ELF ELF communication website entitled Broken English and the Continued Othering of English Speakers. As a fellow linguist and fellow language enthusiast, I was excited to have this chance to speak with Chris about the piece. So Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background in English language education in Japan. Oh, well, um, uh, I'm very happy that you accepted this task to talk about this topic. I, I think you're the perfect person to do it. I'm an associate professor at Kyushu University in Fukuoka. I've spent all of my professional life in Japan, so that's 21 years now. And all of the time has been in Kyushu, so in Miyazaki, Kagoshima, Oita, and now in Fukuoka. My interest from after my master's degree has always been in the area, this area of global world Englishes and language varieties. So when this kind of topic came to mind, it was something that I had quite a lot of background in to speak about. So the big question for me is, what is ELF? Because we all know the acronym EFL, but mm -hmm. ELF is a bit new to some of us. Certainly it was for me. I had to Google it. But for our listeners, what does ELF stand for? Well, ELF, I, I, I'm pretty sure that our listeners are, are understand, as you say, like English, English is a foreign language or English is a second language, EFL and ESL. But ELF is English as a lingua franca. So it operates not so much as a language variety, as would be with world Englishes or global Englishes, and more as a way to describe how English is used as a tool for international or intercultural communication. So if two people who don't speak the same first language, maybe don't even speak the same second language, but they have English as a shared linguistic resource, then that would be an ELF or ELF communication interaction. I've got an interview with Professor Jennifer Jenkins on the Lost in Citations feed, which I recommend people to go and listen to, because not only can you hear a lot of background to this topic, but you also got introduced to her cats. The community that in linguistics that promotes English as a lingua franca has kind of given up on the idea that it is a variety of English. So it's not, we don't talk about what ELF is, you talk about how English is used. So it's generally now viewed as a tool of communication rather than it is any particular variety. So you don't necessarily teach an elf variety, you teach an elf mindset to promote the idea of having a, a wider understanding of how the language is used internationally. Teaching an elf mindset. I like that. And tell me more about the ELF communication website. I noticed that there's a grant aid at the top of the webpage. Well, this is because I put in for and received a what we call in Japan a, a kaken grant for money to for research purposes. The translation is that it's a grant in aid. So the reason why that number is on the top of every page is because it's important to note where the money is coming from. My 
original idea was investigating the use of English for intercultural communication on campus. And I was granted that money in April 2020, exactly at the moment where there were no students on campus. So I had to kind of repurpose the idea to make sure that I could get the research project completed within three years. And this is now the third year. So working with my research colleague, Aaron Han, we kind of looked at ways, because in the proposal, there was the idea that we would create materials, we would kind of have these focus groups, and we would interview students from various countries and ask them essentially the same bunch of questions, but we would do it in English and we would record it and we would create lesson materials based around it. And then the students in the classroom would see how English was being used as a tool for international intercultural communication. And it would kind of lower their tension if they ever had to use English on campus with students from other countries. This was the plan. But we were not in regular classes for 18 months. And also we are requested not to be in enclosed environments as much as possible. So we still have this COVID warning 1.5, which means that we can have in-person classes, but we shouldn't be in enclosed spaces as much as we can avoid it. This isn't a video podcast, but I built the studio in my research space, you know, microphones, monitors, ways that we could do this, video cameras, and all these kind of things that we would produce to make. Sweet setup. Uh, it is pretty sweet. It, it's just just covered in dust now. Um, I'll, well, I'll get back. I'll repurpose it at some point. It's definitely not going to go to waste. But I, but we always said that we were going to do this. We we're going to put it online. So the idea behind the Elf Communication website is that what we did is we took Lost in Citations interviews. We took hour-long interviews with people because about half of our interviews are with people who are using the language as uh, English as their second or third or fourth language but they're using it to talk about very thick academic concepts. So we thought, well, how about if we repurpose these, cut them down to about nine, 10 minutes, take out all the other voices of me and John, because no one wants to listen to us anyway, and just focus on the speaker. So we'd find people from around the world using English, but also people who were using English and not living in the place where they first learned it. So one of the, a good example is yourself. So you were born in Jamaica, but you've lived in French, in Francophone places as well. And you now teach English in Japan. And so we thought this kind of linguistic journey was also an interesting part of the story. So we put all of these together. We, I think we've got 15 online now. We've got four more in the works, and we hope to build it up to about somewhere between 25 and 30 so that students have the opportunity to choose the topic and the speaker that they'd like to listen to because 30 is too many to listen to in a single course so they can choose eight or ten or the ones that interest them the most but hopefully they'll come back and listen to all of them at some point so your target audience for your for the website for elf communication is your students mainly yes uh i'd also like uh, when i thought about my target I think my target for the website is mainly students, 
But I think that regular listeners to the podcast can get something out of it as well if they just want to come in and listen to a 10-minute version of what can be. You know, it, it's, it's somewhat of a commitment to listen to a podcast for an hour, but you might want to just listen to nine or 10 minutes of it. My target for the blog that I wrote, which is, it's kind of the beginning of what is probably going to be an article in our in-house journal. My target was mainly other language teachers to kind of give that, I mean, as we mentioned before, the idea that ELF is not a, an approach to language teaching. It's, it's kind of a way that you think about what your, the end goal for your students. So it's not, the, it's not a methodology, but it's a, a way that you make decisions about the activities that you do in class and the way that you view your students using the language in the future. So I think some of the messages in the, in the blog that I wrote would be more interesting to teachers than students. But I put it on the website as well, just in, just in case students were interested. It's really good to see such a thought-provoking article on the topic of broken English, because growing up in Jamaica, this is a term that I heard a lot and a lot about our own Creole language, mm. which is English-based, but it is a completely separate language. And it was definitely good to, to see that someone else also realizes just how problematic the use of this term is. And especially when it comes on to dismissing different varieties of English, and especially if it's not North American Anglophone variety or UK variety, it's really good to see that you're, you've opened up the conversation on this topic. I've written a paper in the past, again, with Aaron Han, of trying to build a four-dimensional model of how English is used internationally and how it's changed over time. And the, the other thing that I didn't put in the paper yet is the newer concept called translanguaging, where people might use, for example, to Japanese people who were using English to complete a task might use common terms, common Japanese terms, to fill in for concepts that they know the other person understands. Or say, for example, a, a Korean student or a Chinese student who's lived in Japan for some time would understand the word genki or daijoubu in place of feeling good or being okay, that they would have this kind of shared non-English but trans-language lexicon. So ELF kind of forms, falls in that area. And I'm just very interested to investigate that the way that English is developing in non-Anglophone locations. So now let's shift to talking about the article itself, about the blog post that you made. And I'm really curious about the background to this mm. blog post. What prompted you to write it? Well, it's, it's like when you study something like English literature and you, you study it to a, to, a, to a high level or you study critical thinking to a high graduate level, nothing is ever the same again. So no interaction between yourself or someone else is the same once you've studied language teaching because you are always listening for things that are there and listening for things that are not there. And then specifically the things that are not there, these are the things that you're analyzing in real time. And you kind of have to work hard to switch those things off. 
as I said, when you study English literature, it's really difficult to then watch movies or read a book without reading it and watching it critically and creating the book report or the movie review in your mind in real time as, as you're watching and reading. And so when I, I started studying world Englishes and global Englishes back in 2003, so it's been now nearly 20 years that this thing has been switched on. So anytime I hear phrases like broken English or not English or native speaker, a non-native speaker of English, it's something that triggers me <laughs> to think about the reason why this is being used. So is it being used in a, well, positive is probably the wrong word to say, but is it being used in a way that is positively discriminating and making sure that the right decisions are being made in order to put the right person in the, in the right classroom or choose the right material for the right students for the goal of the course? Or is it being used in a negatively discriminatory way in order to exclude something from the classroom or from the student's experience? And so I, I basically have three roles at the moment. I'm a, a language researcher first, I'm a language teacher second, and I'm an administrator third. And so as part of my administration, I was hearing, so we're making curriculum decisions, I was hearing quite a lot about excluding textbooks or excluding teaching materials because they included broken English. And again, and this is with my world English's spidey sense turned on, I was quite concerned about this. But I, again, with my, in my role as a language re researcher, I couldn't respond in real time without knowing exactly what this meant. So I came back from one particular meeting about six months ago and just went into a deep dive. Uh, I started on, obviously, Google Scholar, then went through a bunch of other places, academia.edu, ResearchGate, places like that, ended up, uh, I mean, dictionaries and, you know, ended up on Wikipedia as well, which, uh, as I say in the thing, it's not a source, but it is, it is a place where people kind of congregate their general impressions of things. And I, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that broken English generally is seen as what English as an international language or global English is, was thought about in academia about 10 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago. So the only place where I could find, the only place where I didn't find the phrase broken English was in academic papers. I found it everywhere else. So that is, that told me that there's a general consensus with people outside of this academic field that broken English is still a thing that can be that it can be openly spoken about without it seeming like you have any kind of prejudice. And as I said, I mean, as you, as you noted, but the title was Broken English and the Continued Othering of English Speakers. And I think you, you rightly summarized it as being a way to separate people from the, ang people in the Anglosphere and people who are using it as a variety, as a Creole, as a, as a, as a local dialect and we've spoken at length about this, and I, I kind of want to get back into that. We've spoken at length about this both in your interview with previous interview and 
and in other conversations that we've had. And I kind of, from this, I just sat down and I, I just opened a Word document. I started putting my, my thoughts down and then I reorganized them and put it together into something that looked like a, an article, but I knew I couldn't get it published at this point, but I wanted to get it out. So I, I put it on the website. One of the quotes that you had in the blog post was, in some contexts, language use that deviates from the imagined standard English is labeled pidgin or creole in order to separate it from being considered a contextually relevant form of language. This is not a creole, but a lack of knowledge of elements of the language rather than a legitimate variety. And for me, as a native speaker of a creole language, this really resonated with me because English-based creole languages are often misrepresented as bastardized, ver bastardized versions of English when they are in fact completely separate languages. In as much as how English vocabulary, its lexicon, came from lots of other languages. It's the same way that in Creole languages, we have the majority of the lexicon coming from English, but the syntax, the structure of the language is entirely different and it renders it a completely different language. And as you previously mentioned, unfortunately the term broken English is often used to exclude other varieties and also English-based pidgins or English-based Creole languages. Yeah, that's exactly the point. And it's and it is often a way to attempt to singularly elevate one's own performance of a shared linguistic resource. So as I use an example in the in the text, the the word my word choices, my grammar choices, my pronunciation choices, my linguistic stress choices are going to be different from someone from, let's say, Louisiana. We're both going to be using the same language, but the cultural history of how I'm using the language and how they're using the language is very, very different. And as you say, you know, the, the interactions from other languages and the insertions of words from, from other languages over the centuries means that although we are technically speaking the same language, the way that we might even teach it and the choices that we make to tell our students what is quote unquote correct are gonna be affected as much by culture as by the, the language that we're actually using. So for me, uh, I, 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 was, I was very interested in the discussion and I linked it in the blog post as well that was on ResearchGate. Because the reason for the discussion that opened up the, the discussion thread was the person said, I can't find an academic definition of broken English. And she received a lot of connections with this saying, well, in India, we say that broken English is people who can't speak the language because they haven't learned it from a young age. Or I think one of the posters was from Iran and someone from somewhere else in the in the subcontinent as well. And, and the person came back and said, oh, thank you very much for your input, but we're not saying that it's wrong, right? And everyone came back and said, no, 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 we're not saying it's wrong. We're just saying that they are not as, you know, skilled or confident in their use of English as other people. So broken English tends to be used generally even in academia as 
people who are on the road to more proficient use. But generally, the idea was that it's used in a negative way and shouldn't be what and shouldn't be the word that we use. When you go to somewhere like Wikipedia, it will tell you that broken English is use of low proficiency English speakers or the fossilization through interlanguage from uh, interference from their first language. And that's kind of where I start to disagree because interference from first language is where global English is an, English is an international language and ELF comes from. It comes from that interference and you know, tra you know transfer, what used to be called transfer errors are now called translanguage innovations in academia. But this is something that I think hasn't been widely publicized. So it's, it's still part of my mission to recommend people think more broadly about English rather than believing that there is a kind of standard. And that's another thing that I, I try to bring up. English doesn't have something like l'Académie Française or the Spanish school. Unlike Arabic, it doesn't have the Medianic standard of the Quran that you can point to and say, this is the language. And that is the very reason why it has become the most successful international language, because it just keeps adding from other sources. So if you were to exclude these innovations, then I think the development of the language would, would slow down and it would severely hurt its development because it would be exclusionary. So that's part of the background. My, my motivation for writing it was an annoyance, almost an anger, that this mindset is continuing. And as you said in the article, language requires renewal and constant movement. And that's so true. Language is dynamic. And the only stagnant language is a dead one. Languages change. They evolve. We, we add new vocabulary. We add and create new sentences, new phrases, new terms of expression, new slang. The slang that my parents grew up with definitely is not the slang that I am using right now and not the slang that the next generation growing up are using. And so you bring out a very important point. This is very important to have all of this transference that's happening between languages because that's what makes English so dynamic. Yeah, I think that's the point. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 42. I've lived in Japan for 21 years. Were I to go back to London and speak to a bunch of 12 and 13 year olds, it's possible that we might not understand each other. Because as you say, the slang changes over time. It's, it's contextually specific. And we came up with this idea that internationalization was the ability to move vertically between your present context and other contexts. So being able to change how you speak in order to fit with the place that you're using the language. So it would be entirely improper for me to go to Mumbai and speak as I always do and require that the proficient English language users in Mumbai understand me without changing anything about, without any, there being any negotiation. Whereas a globalization would be a standard 
where everything would be integrated horizontally and there'd be no difference, at which point it, it wouldn't be as fun anymore. So when everyone is listening to the same music, watching the same movies, wearing the same clothes, speaking the same, exactly the same form of language, and the slang is the same everywhere, it's, it's not as much fun as going to somewhere where you have to do some negotiation, you have, they have to explain it to each other, you have to learn a little bit more about how they're using the language. I think that's much, much more interesting. When I was a, a language school teacher, people were writing articles about the McDonaldization of English, where you could walk into a language school in Japan, Korea, Singapore, India, the Philippines, and within 30 minutes, you'd learn, you'd learn one thing. You'd have a one-point lesson, and you'd know exactly what it was, and you'd walk in, you'd learn it, and then, you, and then you'd leave. And so it would be you know, broken up into these, these little things. So they called it McDonaldization. Then World English has got into the zone of the Coca-Colaization, of the language where everything was the same. And so everyone trying to sell the same product to everyone on the planet. And that didn't work. And so now we're in the, the era of hopefully the development. Uh, so as academia goes, so do uh, uh, you know textbooks and curricula develop. I mean, when I, when I first started, learning about how to teach English. Nobody knew who Braj Khatru was. Now, not everyone knows who Braj Khatru is, but they do know about his three circles. And it comes up again and again about the idea you have the inner circle with the original you know, donor countries, the outer circle, the former colonies, and the expanding circle uh, everywhere else where English is used. And you go to any conference and People are trying to kind of shoehorn this concept into so many different areas to kind of give them some kind of academic legitimacy. Look, I know what the three circles are. Perhaps one of the most useful presentations that I went to early on in my academic career was in 2007. I went to a presentation that was held by Jalt Publishing about how to get published. And they were talking about specifically about the lit review and how people who review papers look very, very carefully at the literature review of whose sources are you using? Are they relevant? Are they recent? And are they things that help set up the reader to understand where this project came from, where this research was motivated? And they had a slide that I'll never forget. It was Vygotsky is not a Swiss army knife. And language researcher Vygotsky is so often used in master's level papers as providing the support for basically anything. So whether you're talking about the zone of proximal development or you're talking about textbook design or curricular design, people will often just put in Vygotsky 1978 or Vygotsky 1987 and just assume that people are just gonna go, okay, that supports that point, because he was such an important producer of work in that space. Same thing goes for Jack C. Richards, same goes for Rod Ellis. These are names that people know, and so just by throwing those words, by throwing those names in, writers think that that will be enough, With, but they're not actually providing enough relevancy to the thing that they're talking about. So, there are certain concepts within world Englishes 
usually names like Katru, Seidelhofer, Jenkins, Matsuda, Hino, that you could just you could create a whole lit review just based on just on those names alone and think that that was enough. What I have found, particularly in the realm of curriculum development, is that there isn't enough broad understanding about not just including items of static curriculum design, things that have always been known, there's not enough wider understanding of sociolinguistic concepts. And so I hope that by publishing these things, particularly by putting them in the in-house journal, not calling anyone out by name, but just saying, look, we are often in meetings together and these concepts come up and are dismissed without being discussed and included in the bedrock of the curriculum itself because we are not considering deeply enough what the goal is for our students. The goal is not for our students to go and work at a finance house in, in Wall Street. And so being able to use a specific type of English for use in an American context, our goal is for our students to be confident to use English at a time when it's convenient for them. And that could be in the that could be in Korea, it could be in the Philippines, could be in India, South Africa, Canada, could be in London. We don't know. But they have to be able to be confident enough to negotiate their way through a conversation in a context as yet undefined. And that means that they need to be, it needs to be a little bit more freeform in how we approach curriculum and task design. So one of the concerns that you mentioned in the article was that university students in Asia have concerns about named English varieties. Could you expound a bit on that? Well, that was one of the findings from my PhD. It was one of the things that, that made me a little bit concerned that this was something that I've not discovered, but that came out of a survey that I did in 2012 from Japanese, Korean, and Chinese students at an international university here in Japan. And that 10 years later, the same concerns were being voiced by language instructors when designing a curriculum. So the students themselves were saying, so the, the Japanese students would say, well, I find Korean English or Chinese English difficult to understand. The Korean students would say, well, Japanese don't speak English correctly. Or the Chinese students would say, well, I have Bangladeshi or Indian professor for economics, and he speaks English in a way that I don't understand. So the hyphenated varieties, the named English varieties were Indian English, Japanese English. And these are world Englishes. These are geographically located Englishes. And I proposed in my, this was in my PhD thesis, I proposed ways to counteract this would be through greater interaction. And that has been what my research has been for the last 10 years to try and increase the amount of peer-to-peer -peer interaction using English as a shared second language linguistic resource. And in that way, reducing the tension. Because 
in heuristic terms, if you're a Japanese user of English and you never have the chance to speak to a Chinese user of English, then you might have an image of that person before you speak to them. And that will cloud your efforts in that interaction. Whereas if you go into the interaction knowing that their performance is going to be different from yours, but also your performance is going to be different from what they expect, from what they've seen in American movies or listened to in English Anglophone radio or whatever, or in the textbooks. If you both go into that interaction knowing that, then you're prepared for it. And negotiation can be more free-flowing and you're more likely to achieve the goal of the interaction. So in my PhD, I came up with ideas of how we could how we could do this in classrooms. And I was working at an international university at the time. And, and Kyushu University is fairly international. We've got about 10% of our students coming from overseas. So when I got the opportunity through the research funding to do this, I was very interested in producing materials that we could use in the classrooms. Unfortunately, we weren't in the classrooms, so we had to put it online. But I think I've been... I've achieved about 65% of what I had thought about when I was preparing this proposal four years ago. And I'm gonna I'm gonna keep on in that vein as well. Cause I actually I'm I'm filling out a research proposal because in the three years is up, so I have to think about what to do next. And so I'm gonna continue in this vein as much as possible. One of the things that I've realized while talking to you and talking to you about your students and you mentioned it just now, is that your university is quite multinational. There are lots of students from, obviously Japanese students, yes, but there are also lots of students from other countries around the world. And I'd imagine that the professors as well are also quite varied with what parts of the world they are from. And it's really good to hear that the students are able to be exposed to different varieties of English because I know for me, when I first came to Japan and I was teaching at a high school, the students were mostly exposed to American English. And I put American English in quotation marks because there are so many varieties of American English. But they were mm. exposed to the, the, the standard New York radio accent, if you will. And I remember walking into the classroom and there was one particular teacher and she, you could tell that she was not pleased with my accent. <laughs> it's always, it, it made me feel deflated as an educator because despite having experience in linguistics and a background in teaching English and teaching English in a foreign, another foreign setting, it was my accent that was the big challenge for this particular teacher. Thankfully, the other teachers were not as bothered, actually not bothered at all by my Jamaican accent, but it's always good to hear about students being exposed to different varieties of English, different accents as well, mm. and understanding that English is not spoken only one way, but that there are lots of other ways that English is represented. It's funny because I was rejected as as a teacher when back when I was working for the language school all the way back in 2000 and 2002 when I was young and handsome the there was a there was a customer who wanted a, a private language class for her son 
but would keep coming in because she was already a student at the class and she was in group lessons and she was working with a teacher from Canada. And she was very happy with that. But she wanted, she would not let her son be taught by someone with an English, British English accent. So she kept going in. And this was, this was quite an investment because the, the, the manager kept asking her because this was 9,000. So this is about 50 English pounds, about $80 per 50-minute lesson. So this was a serious investment. So she kept saying, no, I want the American. And the manager would have to say, she's Canadian. And she was like, well, but she doesn't sound like that. I was like, and that was me. And the irony was at the time, I mean, I was, I was completing my master's degree in English language teaching. So I was technically the most qualified language teacher in the whole company, probably. And in the end, she, she, she gave up and said, okay, okay, okay. We, you know, we, you know, you know, we'll, we'll take the Brit. And her son really enjoyed it. And at the end of it, when I, when I actually left, when I moved on to another thing that she was very nice to me, she, uh, uh, her husband actually gifted me one of the nicest pens I've ever received because he said, he said that his son enjoyed the lessons so much. But the, the idea that the accent is what makes the interaction successful or not is something that we have to we have to kind of breed out of language teaching ideology and understand that it's it's such a combination of things that make the language lesson successful and thereby makes the the student therefore successful in their use of the language in the future agreed entirely it's very interesting to hear you as a brit because of course as we all know England is the progenitor of the English language. And to hear <laughs> to hear that you also experienced this. It's always interesting to me hearing the stories of different English speakers here, more so when it comes to the changes that they've had to make to their accents because they are being told that that is not how it is said in English. But they they grew up in an English speaking environment entirely. They grew up through an education system where they were taught in English. They went to universities and were taught primarily in English, but that's not how it's said. My husband, who is an American, has to change his accent as well, which I've also found quite interesting, but not, en not entirely changed, but with certain words. For instance, he says water, but he has to say water, which for me, it's natural to say water. But for him, it's something that he has to actively remember. Okay, when I'm talking about this clear liquid that we drink to hydrate our bodies, it's water. <laughs> no, it's funny because my son's language support teacher, ALT, assistant language teacher at his elementary school, my, my oldest son, who is 12, is from Atlanta. And, but I, of course, am I'm not from Atlanta. So the person who is from Atlanta would probably call it Atlanta. And I say Atlanta, but when he speaks and practices English for the tasks that he's doing for homework, he speaks in a rhotic way. So he will say Atlanta. My teacher is from Atlanta. Whereas when he explains it to me and I'll say, Ira, where, where's your teacher from? 
I was like, oh, my teacher is from Atlanta. Like he, he recognizes the difference between a rhotic and non-rhotic form of language production, which is, to me, is fascinating. It's interesting to see it from the other side, that they're getting inputs from two different varieties of the language. But the more, more interesting thing is that they're able to switch. Yes, he's recognizing the difference. And that is the key to ELF, which is recognizing who you're talking to and knowing how to change, the things to change, to make you most comprehensible. It doesn't mean that the person you're speaking to is speaking broken English, and it's not that you are breaking your English. You are using it exactly how it's supposed to be. And you point out that the root of English is England. But I think that in some ways that that kind of plays against the, the, the mindset of using it as a, as a world language. If it was called anything else, I think people would see it as use it in a way that works best for them. But because it's geographically rooted and historically rooted, I think people sometimes have a, a hard time breaking that idea. I'm actually really curious about what the general view of Britons is towards British versus non-British varieties of English. That's a good question, actually. And it's I have to give you the same answer that I give my wife whenever she asks me. She's like, what's it like in England? How, how do you do this in England? I'm like, I have lived more of my life in Japan than I have in England. I haven't lived in England for any more than three weeks at a time for more than two decades. So I really don't know. And so I, I had this conversation with, with Dr. Jenkins, and she talked about a, a point that I brought up before, but it's worth mentioning again, that people who use the language as a first language, for example, in England or in America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and have never used it in an international or intercultural communication setting. She called them aggressively monolingual in that they will feel, even if an American comes into a local pub in my hometown of Sheffield, they would, they would think that they were listening to a foreign language. They would shut down and just be like, no, mate, what, what do you want? Do you want a pint? Do you want half a pint? What do you want? And if the person was saying, uh, yeah, I like a beer. No, we, we don't serve beer. <laughs> we, we serve ale. What do you want? Which one do you want? We've got four. Like, so it's, it's that idea. Again, it's the general approach to language use that over time will change but it has to start in the language teaching mindset first because when that happens then it then it passes on to then the, the more pluralistic approach to language teaching and language learning passes on to the students and then the students then use it in a more pluralistic way a more pluricentric way and then it then moves its way into the community so i I, I really don't know what the approach is, what the idea is in England, but most of the time I think that 
it, it is beholden upon the person who is in their non-first language context, the person, let's use the, the person from Louisiana who goes to North Yorkshire, that they are going to have to change the way that they speak to fit in with the context and not the other way around. But if the person from North Yorkshire goes to New Orleans, they're going to have to change. And if we, if we approach it in that way, then I think we're, we're on the right track. Very well said. For me as an English speaker, whenever I encounter new accents, it's always the, at first, what? <laughs> what did you say? But I don't know, I can't speak for anyone else, but my process when it comes on to understanding another English speaker is, I listen to the patterns of pronunciation and I listen to how they say words that, and how I would say the word. And then I'll isolate a particular vowel sound. I'm like, okay, whenever I hear this particular vowel sound, when they say it, it means it translates to this vowel sound in my variety of English, in my accent. And then I can understand the word. And of course it takes a little bit of time speaking to the person again and again, depending on the accent. Some accents for me are easier to understand than others based on exposure, based on Hollywood movies. Hopefully those with good sense. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I always find it very, it's exciting for me. I really enjoy it. Growing up, we in Jamaica, we use the British system. And so our education system, we spell color with a U, neighbor with a U. And fiber is R-E, not E-R, for instance. And it was always, there was always that mentality, as you said, you know, breaking the, the, that mentality. There's always a mentality that British English is superior. It's the English variety that everyone should aspire towards. But then coming to Japan and interacting with speakers from around the world and also having a partner who is an American and listening to the differences in our accents and how we say things, it's really opened my eyes. And I've even seen how in Jamaica, we actually mix British English with American English a lot and in ways that we don't actively realize. Even with a car, depending on what part of the car you're talking about, we use British words for certain parts and we use American words for other parts. We say a bonnet, but a trunk, mm -hmm. for instance. So I be, of course, international, internationalization and travel is something of privilege being exposed to be having the money, the means to travel around the world. It's definitely a, a point of privilege. So I, I have to acknowledge that, but it's great when we are able to be in these positions to be able to talk with people and realize that there's so much more to language and communication. Well, you said, you said an interesting word there that I, I think is important to remember. There's nothing wrong with being aspirational. There's nothing wrong with growing up in Seoul, but wanting to sound like you're from New York. There's nothing, there's nothing at all wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with growing up in Jamaica and wanting to sound like you're from Sussex, okay? If, if your aspiration is to go and live in Sussex, if your aspiration when growing up in Seoul is to go and work in New York, then there's no reason why you shouldn't use that as a model. And that's fine. The, the problem is when the teacher in the classroom says, this is the model. 
if individual students want to have an aspiration to speak as speak as someone from someone else speaks, fine. If the problem is if the teacher says, no, you can't speak like that, that's not how the Americans do it. That's where the problem comes in. And even when it's the Americans, certain pronunciation is also changed mm. arbitrarily, like with the water, water, mm. also instance. Well, I, I had a friend, uh, a colleague, uh, whose son is older than mine. So he was explaining to me about language teaching in Japan and said that he had a, a, his son. I mean, he's British and his son was chastised for saying, zebra and the teacher said no it's zebra and he said mm, daddy says zebra and and, it, and i said what did you do so what do you mean what did i do i said but well, i'd be i'd be straight down the school talking to that teacher and saying they're both fine like the the message should be from you the language teacher oh that's right they're both fine if i mean if you want to say zebra that's a bit that's a little bit off piste, but if the person who you're talking to understands it, it's still not wrong. It's just different. So, yeah, I, I, the, the, the basic point of writing this is to try and get the message out more that it's the same. It's, it, it's not wrong. It's just different. It's not broken. It's, it's, a, it's a form of the language that is in development. And to pull to you again in the article, which English and whose English must always remain all of them and everyone's. Amen. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for talking with me today. I had a really great time. This was my first time interviewing anyone, much as for a podcast and a podcast of this magnitude. Lost in Citations is amazing. You, you and Jonathan have done amazing work. Thank you so much for having me as your guest <laughs> interviewer. And thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you so much. You were great at it. Thank you. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.